Part two, chapter seven of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. He was presently walking back, returning to Tidborough. He was trying very hard, all his life's training against sudden unbridling of his bridled passions, to grapple his mind back from its wild and passionate desires, and from its amazed coursings upon the immense prairies, teeming with hazards, fears, enchantments, hopes, dismays, that broke before this hour as breaks upon the hunter's gaze, amazingly awarded from the hill, savannas, boundless, new, unpathed, from these to grapple back his mind to its schooled thought and ordered habit, to its well-trodden ways of duty, obligation, rectitude. He had not left them, but for that cry of her name wrung from him a sudden application of pain against whose shock he was not steeled. He had answered nothing to her lamentable disclosure. This which he now knew, these violent passions which he now felt, but lit for him more whitely the road his feet must take. If he ever tried to consciously see his life and Mabel's from Mabel's point of view, now, when his mind threatened disloyalty to her, he must try, and would. The old habit, old trick of seeing the other side, acted never so strongly upon him as when unkindness appeared to lie down in his own attitude. Unkindness was unfairness, and unfairness was above all qualities the quality he could not tolerate and here was unfairness open monstrous dishonourable mabel should not feel it but he was aware he was informed by a voice in his ears you have struck your tents you are upon the march he approached the town the school lay in this quarter and his way ran through its plain fields and its buildings nature in her moods much fashioned his thoughts when he walked the countryside or rode his daily journey on his bicycle he now carried his thoughts into her mood that stood about him nature was to him in october and not in spring poignantly suggestive deeply mysterious in her intense and visible occupation she was enormously busy but she was serenely busy she was stripping her house of its deckings dismantling her habitation to the last and uttermost leaf but she stripped dismantled extinguished broke away not in despair defeat but in ordered preparation and with exquisite certitude of glory anew that in october was her voice to him stirring tremendously that faculty of his seeing more clearly envisioning his life more poignantly with his mind than with his eye she spoke to him of preparation for winter and beyond winter with ineffable assurance for spring bring winter what it might he saw her dismantling all her house solely to build her house again. She packed down. She did not pack up, which is confusion, flight, abandonment. She packed down, which is resolve, resistance, husbandry of power to build, and burst again. And burst again, in stout affairs of outposts and sheltered banks and secret nooks, in swift, amazing sallies of violent daffodil and primrose, in multitudinous clamor of all her buds in May, and last in her restless tide and flood an avalanche of beauty to triumph and possession this was october's voice to him that he apprehended and tingled to it as the essence of its strange heavy odors secret of its veiling mists whisper of its moisture laden airs song of its swollen ditches brooks and runnels it was not take down it is done 
It was take down. It is beginning. Mankind, frail parasite of doubt, seeks ever a sign, conceives no certainty but the enormous certitude of uncertainty. A sign, in death, take down then, but leave me this, and this for memory. Perhaps, who knows, it may be true. But leave me this for memory, in promise. So be it then. But give me some pledge, some proof, some sign. Not thus October. October spoke to Sabre of nature's sublime imperviousness to doubt. Her enormous certainty, old as creation, based in the sure foundations of the world. Take down. It is beginning. Sabre used to think it gets you, terrifically. It's stupendous. It's too big to bear. He had this thought of October. You can't walk along lanes or in woods in October and see this mysterious business going on without knowing perfectly well that this astounding certainty must apply equally to human life. I'd wish the death of anyone I loved to be in early autumn. No one can possibly doubt that in early autumn, in winter perhaps, and in spring and in summer you can know. Cynically, it will pass. But in October, no. Impossible then. And not only death, life. Life as one lives it. You can't. Can't feel in autumn that in the lowest depths there is lower yet. You only can feel, know, that the feeling will break, that there's an uplift at the bottom of it all. There must be. Take down. It is beginning. The spirit and the message of the season begin as opiate among fevered senses, to steal about his thoughts. Had anything happened? His feeling was rather that he was at the beginning of something, or at the end of something, which was the same thing. The place whereupon he stood entered into his thoughts. He had left the main road, and was skirting through the school precincts. He was crossing the strip, historic sward whereupon played the first twenty-five football matches. Impossible to be upon the strip, without peopling it again with tremendous battles that had been there, the giants of football who had made their fame and the school's fame, the crowded, tumultuous touch-lines, the silent tremendous combat in between. Memories came to him of his own two seasons in the twenty-fifth, his own name from a thousand throats upon the wintry air, his muscles tautened, again as he fought some certain of those enormous moments when the whole life was bound up slowly in the unspeakable necessity to win astounding trick of thought from what beset him he was alone upon the strip in an overcoat on the way to forty not a sound not a soul and with that brooding sense of being upon the edge and threshold of something vast dark threatening unfathomable down the steep hill, flanked by masters' houses, twilight merging now into darkness, boys passing in and out of the gateways. Past Telfer's, which had been his own house. All his youth was preparing for life, all these houses eternally, generation after generation, pouring boys out into life as at Shotley Iron Foundry he had seen molten metal poured out of a cauldron. And every boy poured out, imagined he was going to live his own life. Oh, hapless delusion! Lo, as the same moulds awaited and confined the metal, so the same moulds awaited and confined the living stuff. Mysterious convention, laws, labors, imperceptibly receiving, implacably blinding and shaping. 
The last day he had come down the steps of Telfer's, jumped down, how distinctly he remembered it! It was his own life he was coming down, eagerly jumping down into. Well, here he was, passing those very steps, and whose life was he living? Mabel's? Old fortunes? And to what end? Whose life was Nona living? He had asked her, Tell me about you and Tybar. With pitiable gentleness of voice, she had approached that quality which had been missing from her first statement of her position, and she had done tribute to her husband's part with generosity, nay, with pride. Tony does everything better than anyone else. She had said it on that occasion of their first re-encounter. Its burthen had been the opening of her recital of what else she had for him. Marco, I think Tony's the most wonderful person that ever was. He does everything that men do, and he does everything best. And everybody admires him, and everybody likes him. You have no idea. You've no idea how he wins everybody he meets. People will do anything for him. They love him. Well, you've only got to look at him, haven't you? Or hear him talk? I think there's never been anyone so utterly captivating as Tony is to look at and to hear. Most engagingly with such words, she had presented him, one that passed through life airily, exquisitely, much fairy gifted in his cradle, with gifts of charm, beauty, preeminence in all he touched, knowing no care, knowing no difficulty, knowing no obstacle or danger, or fear or illness or fatigue or anything in life but gay and singing things when touching he made more bright, more tuneful yet, meeting no one, of whatever age or degree, but his charm was to that age or degree exactly touched, captivating all, leading all, by all desired in leadership, fortune's darling, and Marco, she had at last come to, and Marco, this is the word, graceless, utterly, utterly graceless, without heart, Marco, without conscience, without morals, without the smallest scrap of any approach to any moral principle. Marco, that's an awful, a wicked, an abominable thing for a wife to say of her husband. But he wouldn't mind a bit my telling you. Not a bit. He'd love it. He'd laugh. He'd utterly love to know how he'd stung me so much. And he'd utterly love to know he'd driven me to tell you. He'd love, like anything, to drive me to do awful things. He's tried, especially these two years. He'd love to be able to point a finger at me and laugh and say, Aha! Ha, aha! You know he hasn't got any feelings at all. Love or hate or anything else. It simply amuses him beyond anything to arouse feeling in anybody else. There have been women all the time we've been married, and he simply amuses himself with them until he's tired of them and until the next one takes his fancy, and he does it quite openly before me, in my house, and tells me what I can't see before my own eyes, just before the love of seeing the suffering it gives me. You saw that Mrs. Winfred. He's done with her now, and he's as shameless about me with them as he is about them with me, and what he loves above all is the way I take it, and I take it in no other way. You see, I won't. I simply will not, Marco. Let these women of his see, or let anyone in the world suspect, that I, that I suffer. So when we are together before people, I keep up the gay way we always show together. He loves it. It's delicious to him, because it's a game played over the torture underneath. And I won't do it any other way, Marco. 
I will keep my face to the world. I won't have anyone pity me. I pity you, he said. Ah, you! And he was suddenly shot into an encounter of extraordinary incongruity with his thoughts and of extraordinary intensity. A voice accosted him. He was astounded, as if suddenly awakened out of heavy sleep, to see where he'd come. He was in the narrow old ways of Tidborough Old Town, approaching the precincts, by the ancient corn exchange. A keen-looking young man, particularly well set up and wearing nice tweeds, was accosting him. Sabre recognized Otway, captain and adjutant of the depot, up at the barracks, of the county regiment, one of the crack regiments, famous as the Pinks. Otway said, "'Hello, Sabre, how goes it? Are you going to this show tomorrow?' He was pointing with his stick to a poster displayed against the corn exchange. Sabre read it. It announced that Field Marshal Lord Roberts was speaking there under the auspices of the National Service League on home defense, a citizen army. "'I hadn't thought about going,' Sabre said. He wanted to get away. Otway was staring at the poster as though he had never seen it before, but he had been staring at it when Sabre came along the street. "'You ought to,' Otway said. "'You ought to hear old Bob's. Of course the little chap's all wrong.' He seemed to be talking to himself, staring at the poster, more than to Sabre. Sabre, despite his preoccupation, was surprised. "'All wrong? Good Lord! I should have thought you, of all people!' and immediately a torrent of Otway was let loose upon him, bursting into his thoughts like a stone chucked through a study window. Otway spun around in his keen, quick way to face him. All wrong in the way he's putting his case, I mean. All these National Service chaps are. Home defense they talk about. Nothing but home defense. It's like chucking sawdust into a fire. The fire being all bloody fools who are opposed to military training. Any fool can knock the bottom out of his home defense business. The blue water fools are champions at it. They say the only defense against invasion is the Navy, and that half a million spent on the Navy is worth untold millions chucked away on this nation-in-arms shout, and they're damn right. Well, then, said Sabre, what's the argument? What's the harm in knocking the bottom out of this? He nodded towards the poster. Otway spoke with astonishing intensity. Why, good God, alive, man, don't you see? We do want a nation in arms. We want it like hell. But we don't want it for here at home. We want it to fight on the continent. That's where we've got to fight, out there. And that's where we're going to fight before we're many years older. In his intensity he had extended his left hand and was beating his points into it with the handle of his stick. See that? Sabre was not in the mood to see anything. He only wanted to be away. No, I'm dashed if I do. What are we going to fight on the continent for, supposing we ever do have to fight anywhere? The stick hammering away again. Because we've got obligations there. We've got to defend Belgium, for one. And if we hadn't, if we hadn't any obligations, we'd damn soon find them as soon as ever Germany breaks loose. That's what these National Service Johnnies ought to tell the people. That's what Bob ought to tell them. That's what these blasted politicians ought to tell them. You don't want National Service to defend your perishing homes. The Navy's going to do that. You want it like hell because you've got to defend your lives, out there. He waved his stick towards, out there. My God, he said. He was consumed with the intensity of his own emotions. My God! Despite himself, Sabre was impressed. The man would have impressed anybody. His eyes were extraordinarily penetrating. There actually were tiny little points of perspiration about his nose. 
"'I never thought about that,' Sabre said doubtfully. "'I never thought there were any obligations. "'I doubt any member of the government would admit there were any.' "'I know damn well they wouldn't,' Otway declared. "'And they'd be helped to deny it, or evade it, "'by the howl of laughter there'd be in the commons, "'if anyone had the guts to get up and ask if we had any obligations. "'There's no joke down like that sort of joke.' "'Well,' his manner changed. He tucked his stick under his arm and took out a silver cigarette case. Cigarette? Well, they'll laugh out the other side of their chuckle heads one of these days. Sabre took a cigarette. You're pretty sure there's going to be a war, aren't you? The extraordinary man, who had been smiling and airy, immediately became extraordinary again. He had struck a match, held it to Sabre's cigarette, and was applying it to his own. He extinguished it, and with violent jerks of his arm, dashed it on the pavement. "'Sure. My God, sure. I tell you, Sabre, you won't be five years. I don't believe you'll be two years, one year, older before you'll not only be sure, you'll know. I've just finished a course at the Staff College, you know. We finished up with a push over to Belgium to do the battlefields. We went into Germany, some of us. They fed us in some of their messes. Do you know?' Those chaps in those messes there talked about fighting us as naturally and as certainly as you talk with your opponents about a coming footer match. They talked about when we fight you, not if we fight you. When? As if it was fixed as Christmas. And they didn't talk any of this bilge about fighting us in England. They knew as I know, and every soldier knows, every soldier who's keen, that it's going on out there, in Europe. He had not taken two puffs of his cigarette before he wrenched it from his mouth and dashed it after the match. Sabre, why the hell aren't people here told that? Why are they stuck up with this rod about defending their shores when they can see for themselves that only the Navy can defend their shores? What are they going to do when the war comes? Are they going to lynch those bloody politicians who haven't told them they've got to fight for their lives? Are they going to turn around and say they never knew so they'd be damned if they're going to fight for their lives? Are they going to follow any of these politicians who will have betrayed them? Do you suppose any man who's been a party to this betrayal is going to be found big enough to run a war? I'll tell you another thing. Do you suppose a chap who's been a miserable vote-snatcher all his life is going to turn round suddenly and be a heaven-sent administrator in a war? I can take your oath. Heaven doesn't send out geniuses on that ticket. What you've lived and done in fat times... That's what you're going to live and do and lean. Heaven's chuck stocking divine in the fire. I'm with you there, Saper said. He did not believe half this intense man said, but he conceived a sudden and great admiration for his intensity. And he had had no idea that a soldier ever thought so far away from his own subject, which was a sport and one chance in a million of fighting, as to produce aphorisms on habit and development. But you know, Otway, he said, it's jolly hard to believe all this inevitableness of war stuff that chaps like you put up. Do you read the articles in the reviews and quarterlies? They all pretty well prove that, apart from anything else, a big European war is impossible by the, well, by the sheer bigness of the thing. They say these modern gigantic armies couldn't operate, could not provision themselves. And there's the finance. They can prove you can't fight without money, and that credit would go, and the thing would stop before it had begun, pretty well. I don't know anything about that sort of thing, but the argument strike me as absolutely sound. Otway was waiting with fidgety impatience. I heard all that. I don't give a damn for it. 
Of course you don't know anything about it. No one does. Least of all those writing chaps. It's all theory. Everyone thought with this modern this, that, and the other you were safe on the last word in liners as in your own bedroom. Then along comes that titanic business in April. Where the hell are you with your modern conditions? Fifteen hundred people done in. I tell you, it isn't that things that used to happen can't happen now. It's simply that they'll happen a million times worse. What's the good of theories when you've got facts? Look at the things they've been with Germany just this year alone. Old Haldane over in Germany, in February for unofficial discussions. Churchill threatening two keels to one if the German Navy laws exceeded. That was March. In April, the Germans whack up their Navy law amendment. Twelve more big ships. That chap Bertrand Stewart getting three and a half years for espionage in Germany. And two German spies caught here by us. That chap gross over at Winchester Azizis three years and a friend armed guard graves up at Glasgow. Eighteen months. An American cove at Leipzig taking four years penal for messing around after plans of the Heligoland fortifications. Those five yachting chaps in July arrested for espionage at Eckenford. War, two skits of it. Turkey and Italy hardly done with all those Balkan chaps set to and slosh Turkey. Have you seen today's papers? I'll bet you they'll send Turkey to hell at Kirk Khaleesi or thereabouts before the week's out. He had been ticking these points off on his fingers. Much astonishing Sabre by his marshalling of scattered incidents that had been merely rather pleasing newspaper sensations for a couple of days. He presented the ticked-off fingers bunched up together. There. There's the concrete facts for you, Sabre. Can you say things aren't tightening up? When war comes, people will look back on this year, 1912, and wonder where the hell their eyes were that they didn't see it. What are they seeing? He threw his fingers apart. None of these things. Not one. All this doctors and the insurance bill tripe, Marconi inquiry, Titanic, suffragettes, mashing up the West End, burning down Lulu Harcourt's place, trying to roast old Asquith in the Dublin Theatre, send and murder, this triangular cricket show. Hell's own excitement because there's so much rain in August and people in Norwich have to go about in boats. And then hell's own hullabaloo because there's no rain for twenty-two days in September and people get so dry they can't spit or something. His keen face wrinkled into laughter. Hey, didn't you read that? He laughed but was immediately intense again. That's all that really interests the people. By God, they'll sit up and take notice of the real stuff one of these days. Pretty soon, tightening up, I tell you. Well, I'm off, Sabre. When are you coming up to the mess again? Friday? Well, guess night the week after. I'll drop you a line. So long. He was off, carrying his straight back alertly up the street. His going was somehow as sudden and startling as his appearance had been and tumultuous. He had carried away Sabre's thoughts as a jet from a horse-pipe will spin a man out of a crowd smashed into his preoccupation as a stone smashing through a window upon one deep in study, galloped across his mind as a cavalcade thundering through a village street, and the effect of it, and the incongruity of it, getting his bicycle from the office, he rode home afterwards, kept returning to Sabre's mind, as an arresting dream will constantly break across daylight thoughts. Nona has said that Tybar knew she often thought of him. He knows I think of you. That was the way she put it. It explained that mock in his eyes when they met that day on the road, and Mrs. Winfred's remark and her look, and Tiber's that day outside the office. 
Extraordinary! Otway bursting in like that with all those ridiculous scares. Here he was, riding along, with all his reality pressing enormously about him, and with this strange and terrible feeling of being at the beginning of something, or at the end of something, with this voice in his ears of, Have you struck your tents, and are up on the march? And there was Otway, up at the barracks, miles away from realities, but as obsessed with his impossible stuff as himself, with these most real and pressing dismays. What would he— with his apprehension of what might lie ahead, be saying to a chap like Otway in two or three years, and what would Otway, with his obsession, be saying to him? Ah, two or three years. But Nona loved him, but his duty was here. He could have taken her beautiful body into his arms and held her beloved face to his. But he had said not a word of love to her, only his cry of, Nona, Nona. His duty was here. But what would the years bring? What might have been? What might have been? He finished his ride in darkness. The green, as he passed along it on the freewheel run, merged way through the gloom into obscurity. Points of light from the houses showed here and there. The windows of his home had lamplight through their lattices. The drive was soft with leaves beneath his feet. Lamplight and the yielding undertread and all around walled about with obscurity. It was new. It had shown thus now for some nights on his return, but it was the first time he had apprehended it. New, different, a commencement, an ending. He left his bicycle on the roomy porch. He missed low jinks with her customary friendly greeting. It was very lonely, this. He opened the hall door and entered. Absolute silence. He had grown uncommonly accustomed to low jinks being there. Absolute silence. It was like coming into an empty house. And he had got to go on coming into it, and living in it, and tremendously doing his duty in it. Like an empty house, he stood perfectly still in the perfect stillness. Take down. It is beginning. You have struck your tents and are upon the march. End of chapter 7 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah voiceover-solutions.com